Come follow me, the Savior said, then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one with God's own This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Hey guys, welcome back. This is the episode for October 21st through 27th. Our assignment is 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and the title of the particular assignment for Come Follow Me is Be Not Soon Shaken in Mind or Be Troubled. Now again, this date of October 21st through 27th is kind of blowing my mind because I'm recording this on September 28th, so this is like a month ahead that I'm doing this assignment, but it's because General Conference has kind of thrown our schedule off a little bit. Once we hit General Conference in the next couple weeks or so, I'll do a special General Conference episode, and then that will put us back on track to our regularly scheduled two weeks beforehand episode. But anyways, so jumping back in to Come Follow Me. So be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled. To me this week, that was really helpful. I really liked looking for that theme as I read through First and Second Thessalonians and, you know, looking for different ways not to be shaken in mind or be troubled. Um, this week in particular, it was one of those weeks, and my ladies out there, y'all understand this, when, you know, just something is off with your hormones or your, the balance or whatever is going on in your body. And so things that are like really small and like not a big deal, all of a sudden seem like a mega big deal and like these insurmountable mountains that you like have to climb, right? And so like this week has just been one of those weeks where, you know, I'm like, I know that this is not a big deal, but like I'm falling apart because of it. Like my husband even joked that he was going to make stickers for me that said like, I made it through the day without crying. And like I would text him like halfway through the day and be like, I lost my sticker for today. I mean, it's just, it's been one of those weeks, right? So this scripture assignment, first and second Thessalonians, came along at the perfect time for me, and I'm so grateful to my Heavenly Father for that. Now, before we jump into Come Follow Me, I want to do a rewind, where we rewind back into Acts 17, so we can talk about what was going on in Thessalonica, and why Paul was writing to them, and you know, kind of the whole situation that led into Thessalonians, right? We have in chapter 17 of Acts, all right, starting in verse 1, and y'all, I'm going to butcher the names of these places, so just, you know, bear with me, but it says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis, I guess, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. So he's been in Thessalonica for three weeks, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. Remember, I was like, go chief women, that's awesome. Okay, 
So everything seems to be going well. He's converting not only Jews, but Gentiles, which is interesting to me if he's preaching in the synagogue. He must have been preaching elsewhere as well, you know, in between the Sabbath days, I think. So he's got a really good following here. But then, you know, the music changes. Dun, dun, dun. And we have like the bad guys coming in. And this is in verse five. It says, but the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of a baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. So you've got, like, these bad guys who are, like, I guess it says they were moved with envy. So I'm not sure why they were envious of Paul and Silas, but for whatever reason, like, they were stirring up issues. And so Paul and Silas are staying at the house of this guy named Jason. These bad guys, these, (laughs) I love the way they phrase this, the certain lewd fellows of a baser sort, right? Doesn't that just sound like thugs? It just sounds like thugs. So these two thugs, they go and they, like, rile up, like, the entire city and they're like knocking on Jason's door and like pounding on his windows, right? They assaulted the house of Jason is what it says in verse five. And in six, it says, and when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city crying, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. And then in seven, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus, which of course they had not been doing. And this troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And so at this point, you know, I think Paul and Silas realized like, hey, this trouble that we are causing is not worth staying here and be keeping the church going here. There's other people that can do it with much less commotion than we can. And so then the rulers of the city take a security deposit from Jason to make sure that these riots don't keep happening. And then Paul and Silas head on into Berea. So that was what was going on when Paul went through his first time into Thessalonica. And that's kind of where he left. So he had a lot of love, I think, for the people in that city to stay there through all of that. And then to be able to pick up and leave and realize like, I love these people and I want to serve these people, but not at the cost of destroying their homes and destroying you know, all these different things that we're working for. And so these are the people that he's writing to then in First and Second Thessalonians. We go into Come Follow Me in the introduction. It says, in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas were accused of having turned the world upside down. We just read that. Their preaching angered certain leaders among the Jews, and these leaders stirred the people up into an uproar. As a result, Paul and Silas were advised to leave Thessalonica. Paul worried that the new Thessalonian converts and the persecution that they were facing, and he was unable to return to visit them. So again, because they had stirred up so much controversy there in the city, there probably was a lot of persecution going up against the early Thessalonian saints. Paul says, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith. And in response, Paul's assistant Timothy, Timothy, who had been serving in Thessalonica, brought us good tithings of your faith and charity. In fact, the Thessalonian saints were known as good examples to all those who believe, and news of their faith spread to cities abroad. So obviously, whatever the Thessalonian saints were doing there, it had spread out to the rest of the churches there in the ancient world, which I think is pretty cool. So imagine Paul's joy and relief to hear that his work among them was not in vain. You know, everything he went through there in Thessalonica was not in vain. He had planted seeds that he himself maybe would not ever be there to see, but he was so grateful to hear that those seeds had taken root and were now blossoming. How many times in our lives are we going someplace and we're planting seeds and we're fighting the good fight and we realize that we may never get to see this garden grow. I think that's what Paul had going on here. And so I think a lot of times we're laying down the seeds, even just by our behavior, just by the way we act. 
we're laying down the seeds of what people think of the gospel or, you know, letting people feel the spirit in their lives. We may never get to see the blossoming fruit of what comes of that, but we are laying the seeds and that is the first step in the right direction. But Paul knew that faithfulness in the past is not sufficient for spiritual survival in the future. And he was wary of the influence of false teachers among the saints, which I think is very wise of Paul because, you know, we talked about the certain fellows of a baser sort or whatever. They are moved with envy. So I could definitely see someone who is envious of Paul and Silas and the attention that they were getting trying to infiltrate this early church with like false teachings and false prophets, like that kind of thing. So I could see where he would be concerned about that. So then Paul's message to them and to us is to continue to perfect that which is lacking in our faith and to increase more and more in love. So perfect what's lacking in your faith and increase more and more in love. That's what we're looking at this week in Come Follow Me. The first section is ministers of the gospel preach with sincerity and with love. And in first Thessalonians, Paul's words reveal both concern and the joy of someone who has given himself wholly to serving God's children. Especially in the first two chapters of 1 Thessalonians, you will find words and phrases that describe how a true minister reteaches the gospel. What are you inspired to do to improve your teachings of the gospel? Okay, as I read through 1 Thessalonians about this, I didn't necessarily see any particular phrases that jumped out at me, but just the whole feeling of 1 Thessalonians, you know, it's very similar to the rest of Paul's epistles, you know, where he starts out kind of flowery and praising his audience and like, I send you so much love and I remember you always, you know, like that, that whole thing is kind of going on at the same time, which, you know, again, I know I'm making it like kind of being sarcastic about it or whatever, but it is very genuine. I think Paul genuinely had that love for the people that he taught and he genuinely did pray for them and care about them. And I think he wanted to build them up. So it starts out with that whole building up thing. And so that's really what I got out of the first chapter of First Thessalonians, how do we teach people? We love them and we build them up. Teaching is not about destroying or tearing things down. It's about building people up. And so that's what I got out of the first chapter. I mean, he's talking to them about, you know, I'm remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying you became followers of the Lord and you've received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Ghost. So he's telling them about like how strong you are and remember that strength that you had during times of persecution and hold on to that. He's building them up and kind of like helping them remember who they really are, which I think is a wonderful thing for teachers to do whenever they work with kids. I'm saying this like what work with kids because I work with kids, but I think any teacher anywhere helping your audience remember who they are, what they've been through and how strong they are for coming through it and their gifts and their talents and their abilities, helping remind them again, of who they really are, is a great gift that a teacher can give to his particular students. And so then in chapter two is where I actually started seeing phrases come out that I was like, okay, so this is kind of what Come Follow Me is asking me to look for. Verse seven specifically, it stood out to me, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. I thought about that because I'm like a nurse, you know, obviously it's not a parent, so it's not a parental love, but it is someone who as, you know, babysitting the kids, you know, while the parents are away or whatever. And what a perfect analogy that is for Paul, because, you know, he realizes, hey, I'm not your parents, you know, your heavenly father is your parent, but he's entrusted me with your care 
while I'm here on earth. And I'm here to teach you the way a nurse, you know, like a nursemaid or a governess or whatever, nanny, would be teaching her charges, you know, as they grow up. And so that's kind of how Paul saw himself there with the early saints in Thessalonica. And so I really loved that particular analogy there. And then I started thinking about, you know, the people that I teach, you know, my kids at school, first of all, were the first ones that come to me. My family was another, you know, the people that I work with in my calling and do I love them and am I gentle with them the same way Paul was gentle and loving with his particular charges that he had. And I specifically love the word cherish that they use in there because cherish is not only to love, but I think it also means to hold very dear. You know, it's something that you hold close to your heart. That was interesting to me as well. Something else that I saw in here was in verse 9. He said, Now remember our labor and travail for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached you the gospel of God. Well, now I was like, what is chargeable? Like, what is this word? So I went to, you know, again, the footnote. You know I love some footnotes, guys. You know I love some footnotes. And in 9c, the footnote says the Greek word for this is burdensome. So he says, Remember how we worked And we labored night and day because we would not be a burden unto any of you. So we preached the gospel and we loved you and everything, but we still worked. We took care of ourselves that we would not be a burden on you. And this reminds me a lot of King Benjamin in the Book of Mormon in the same way that he worked to support himself so that he wasn't a burden upon his people. In verse 11, we see he talks about how he exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. Again, there's that analogy of a parent, you know, taking care of its children. So really feeling, I think, like a responsibility for them, not only to teach them, but also to comfort them when they're hurt or when they're not feeling well and to, you know, help them mature and grow. And I think that's what Paul was doing is that he was helping them mature and grow in the gospel. And so I really see how Paul felt that responsibility and carried it with him as he thought about all the saints that he was working to convert and their little burgeoning testimonies in the gospel. So how does that work with us, with the people that we teach? You know, we have a responsibility to teach them, to teach them with love and to really minister to them. You know, that's really what this reminded me a lot of was ministering and how do you minister and um, what ways can you minister? And I started thinking about my calling and I'm like, how can I be a better, you know, I'm I'm a primary presidency for our stake. How can I be a better stake primary presidency counselor? You know, how can I do this? And I realized one of the things that kind of stood out to me is that, you know, I always pray for our primary presidencies. I always pray for our primary presidencies and for the primary kids in our stake. But usually it's just like a blanket, like, you know, bless the presidencies and the presidents and the children of our stake, you know, that kind of thing. And so this week I got the impression that I really needed to start praying for them by name. And I think my Heavenly Father impressed the importance of, of this on my mind because I'm still learning everybody in the stake. And, you know, I I would recognize most of our primary presidencies on site. Like, I would recognize their faces. But I don't necessarily... Names are my curse, guys. You remember, I do not know names. I do not do well with names. I forget names as soon as, like, people are introduced to me. Like, it's just one of my flaws. Um, I do not hold on to names well. I'll never forget a face, but names... Pfft, gone within like the next five minutes after you told me it. So I was like, I really need to start praying for them by names. So this week is, that is one of the things that I've decided I need to do. And so I'm going on and I'm looking up their names and praying for each one of my presidency members here in the stake by name. And that's really something that I feel like is important because our heavenly father doesn't bless us blanket, like in a blanket blessing. Sometimes he does, but most of the time when he ministers to us and he blesses us, it's individually to the needs that we have. 
And so he knows us as individuals, and I think he would want us to teach and minister and love those who are under our care as individuals as well. And so that was something that was kind of impressed on me this week as I was thinking about ministering and how can I apply the way that Paul taught and loved in 1 Thessalonians to how do I apply that to my life. And that's kind of what I came up with. All right, going back into Come Follow Me. This, this section is called, As I Follow Jesus Christ, I Can Become Holy. And it says, We all hope that at the coming of our Lord, we will be able to stand before him with hearts unblameable and holiness before God. What did Paul teach about becoming more holy in 1 Thessalonians 3, 9-13 and 4, 1-12? Well, let's read it. 1 Thessalonians 3, 9-13 For what thanks can we render to God again for you, joy for your sakes before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith? Now God himself, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one towards another, and towards all men, even as we do towards you, to the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So what I see here is Paul is teaching them to love. He says, Increase the love that you have in your hearts for one another, for the people around you, which is so interesting to me because the saints there in Thessalonica were probably going through so much persecution. And he's saying, increase the love that you have for everyone around you, including those who are persecuting you. You know, love everyone towards all men, even as we love you. And so that really stood out to me. When we are holy, we have love for all people, even the people who drive us nuts, right? I don't necessarily know that I have any severe persecution in my life or anything like that, but there's people who, you know, just are not my favorite. And maybe the things they say are not my favorite. And maybe they drive me a little bit nuts, but still to have love towards them and pray for them and, you know, repent when I think unkind things about them because I am judging McJudgerson. And so sometimes I I have to repent of judging people too harshly. So really to me, this showed me that to become holy like my father in heaven, I really need to be more loving to those around me, not only in deed, but in thought as well. Because I think it's real easy for me to paste a big smile on my face and pretend like I love you, but inside, do I really love you? You know, so I'm like, I really need to match up my inner thoughts with my outer actions, I think is what I'm learning here. And then, you know, because otherwise, if I'm not matching my inner thoughts with my outer actions, I'm no better than the Pharisees, you know, the hypocrites that Jesus was teaching. So that was something I'm like, okay, I got got to get my head on straight about, you know, the people I interact with that maybe aren't my favorite. I need to have them be my favorite. I don't know. Maybe not be my favorite because I don't think everybody can be your favorite, but I think I need to be okay with them and get to the point where I'm not thinking unkind things about them. I hope that makes sense. All right, so, and then in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12, this is what we read. Furthermore, when we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as we have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. So to me, even this first verse right here, he's saying, you have talked the talk, now walk the walk. You know what's right, set a good example. Paul showed them how you ought to walk and to please God. So you know what's right, do what's right. And then he continues on verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. And then 3, he says, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. And then he goes on in 3 and on to talk about, you know, keeping yourselves holy before God not violating the things that you know that God has taught as correct and things like that. And I think as teachers, if we are really going to teach and love others and keep ourselves holy so that we can be good ministers to others, we really do need to refrain from playing around in like 
the metaphorical mud puddles that we have here on earth. You know, staying away from the stuff that would cause us to become dirty, I guess, in the sight of the Lord. And Paul talks about this in verse 7, where he says, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but to holiness. And so again, you know, we want to stay away from that metaphorical mud. And then verses 11 and 12 kind of made me um, smile and chuckle a little bit. In 11 it says, And that you study to be quiet, (laughs) and to do your own business, and work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk honestly towards them that are without, that you may have lack of nothing. So in 11 to me, it sounds like he's saying, uh, mind your business. Sweep outside your own doorstep and don't worry about anybody else's doorstep. Take care of your stuff, stay in your lane, and focus on what you need to focus on and not on anybody else's stuff. At least that's what it sounded like to me, and that was the advice I think my Heavenly Father was giving to me, is stay in your lane, Lexi. Just stay in your lane. And so that's really what um, I learned this week that I need to try and do. Um, And then in Come Follow Me, it references this beautiful talk, which I I know I listened to this because I listened to the session of conference. Um, it's by Carol F. McConkie, The Beauty of Holiness, but it never stood out to me before. And I was really amazed at this. I'm like, this is an awesome talk. So The Beauty of Holiness by Carol F. McConkie, and this is from the 2017, April 2017 conference, General Women's Session of Conference. And you know, Come Follow Me Again is talking about like, how can we become holy? And in Sister McConkie's talk, It says, Holiness is in the striving and the struggle to keep the commandments and to honor the covenants we have made with God. Holiness is making the choices that will keep the Holy Ghost as our guide. Holiness is setting aside our natural tendencies and becoming a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord. Every moment of our lives must be holiness to the Lord. And to me, that again, that was very like, I was feeling convicted in my heart of judging others too harshly again. You know, setting aside my natural tendency to be judgy and to instead love others the way that Christ would have me love them. Be patient with others the way that Christ would have me be patient, right? And to me, one of the things I really loved about this talk as well was it talked about our heritage of holiness. And she says, we are daughters of Heavenly Father and each of us has a divine heritage of holiness. How beautiful is that? Like our heritage is holiness. I have never thought of it in that context before, but I really love that. Our Father in heaven has declared, Behold, I am God. Man of holiness is my name. In the pre-mortal world, we loved our Father and worshipped Him. We desired to be like Him. And out of perfect paternal love, He gave us His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior and Redeemer. He is the Son of Man of holiness. His name is Holy, the Holy One of Israel. And our hope for holiness is centered in Christ and in His mercy and in His grace. With faith in Jesus Christ and his atonement, we become clean without spot when we deny ourselves of ungodliness and sincerely repent. We are baptized by water for the remission of our sins. Our souls are sanctified when we receive the Holy Ghost with open hearts. Weekly, we partake of the ordinance of the sacrament. And in a spirit of repentance with sincere desires for righteousness, we covenant that we are willing to take upon us the name of Christ. Remember him. Keep his commandments so that we may always have his spirit to be with us. Over time, as we continually strive to become one with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, we become partakers of their divine nature. So, to me, as we walk through this life and we walk through this world where there is so much sin and just garbage, just, you know, spiritual garbage left and right everywhere we go, the reminder that holiness is our inheritance from our Father, beautiful. You know, beautiful that that is our goal. And the reminder of how we get there, we're 
by relying upon our Savior and His mercy, His grace, and having faith in Him and maintaining our covenants with Him, repenting of anything that would be unholy, and keeping ourselves clean before Him, and that is how we're going to increase the holiness in our own lives. So I really love that talk a lot. And she goes on later into talking about keeping her covenants and um, different examples of people who kept their covenants and making our homes holy places, taking the Holy Ghost as your guide, which to me is one of the ways that I find like how I know I'm living my life correctly is when I feel the Holy Ghost frequently, like throughout my days. Um, if I'm not feeling the Holy Ghost frequently throughout my day, I'm like, okay, so something's wrong. Maybe I'm listening to the wrong kind of music. Maybe I'm in a grumbly mood and I'm not saying nice things to people. I don't know. So, you know, I have to change something to get the Holy Ghost back in my life. So I feel his presence throughout my day. And then at the very end, she talks about Mary and Martha. And this is one of those things where I read it and I was like, oh, I feel that. I feel that in my soul because I'm like, this is me. Okay, so here's here's the thing. She says, when Martha received Jesus Christ into her home, she felt a tremendous desire to serve the Lord to the best of her ability. That's me. I want to serve the Lord to the best of my ability. I want to do the best I can for him. Her sister Mary chose to sit at Jesus' feet and to hear his word. Then when Martha felt burdened about serving without any help, she complained, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? I love the words of the most gentle rebuke that I can imagine. With perfect love and infinite compassion, the Savior admonished, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Sisters, if we would be holy, we must learn to sit at the feet of the Holy One of Israel and give time to holiness. Do we set aside the phone, the never-ending to-do list, and the cares of worldliness? Prayer, study, and heeding the Word of God invite His cleansing and healing love into our souls. Let us take the time to be holy, that we may be filled with His sacred and sanctifying Spirit. With the Holy Ghost as our guide, we will be prepared to receive the Savior in the beauty of holiness. And to me, that really spoke to me, because I get so worked up. And I get so involved in so many different things that sometimes, like Martha, I forget to take the step back and remember what is most important, what matters most. And that's what Mary did. Mary said, yeah, you know, I know we need to eat and, you know, I know we need to do this, but we could just make sandwiches and sit at the feet of Jesus and that would be fine. Whereas like I would get all worked up and be like, no, the Christ is in our home. We have to make him like this amazing four course meal and it has to have, you know, perfect matching placemats and silverware. It has to be Pinterest perfect for Christ. And you know, like that's how I would get all wrapped up. I, I just see it. I like, I see it. And so this to me really spoke to me because that's my personality is I want to make sure, you know, everything's really nice and perfect and everything, but then that's not what I need. What I need is to relax and let the unimportant stuff go, the frills and all the extra stuff go and focus on my savior and focus what is on what is needful. You know, put aside the phone, the never ending to-do list and the cares of the world and focus on prayer and scripture study and time spent with my savior. You know, I'm really good about saying my prayers and about reading my scriptures. It's a habit I've formed and it's something I'm good at, but the quality of my scripture study and the quality of my prayers can vary. Like, you know, sometimes it'll be like a, thank you for all we can do. Thank you for the food. Blessed keep us healthy. You know, I mean like those prayers versus like the pouring out of my soul. And I think this week mainly, and maybe even last week, I'm veering more towards like the vain repetition side of prayer versus like the pouring out of my soul. And so that was something I need to fix. Also kind of similar kind of thing going on with my scripture study where I'm, I'm reading it, but I'm like, Paul, dude, 
It's, some of this is so repetitive. Some of it is so flowery. Like, why can you not just say what you mean? Like, just come out and say what you mean instead of, like, dancing around it with, like, all your flowery phrases. I get really frustrated with Paul. You know, okay, aside, just a side note here here. Okay. So come follow me. I love come follow me. I love the come follow me curriculum. I love how it helps apply the gospel in my life. One thing I do not love about come follow me is it has made me a little bit negative about Paul. Paul was always one of my scriptural superheroes, but having to go in and study him so intensely and carefully, I'm like, dude, you you could have made like all these epistles that you wrote, like five paragraphs long, but instead you've got like pages and pages of run on sentences. Like you could have made this so much more simpler and concise. And so I get frustrated with Paul now, now that I'm studying him so intently and so closely. He needed a really good copy editor. That's all I can say. He just needed a really good copy editor. So thanks, come follow me for, you know, changing my attitude on Paul. That's a little sad. But so anyways, going back to come follow me, let's talk about these next two sections together. And it's all about the second coming. The two sections I'm talking specifically about are, if I am faithful and watchful, I will be prepared for the Savior's second coming. And then the section called an apostasy or falling away from the truth was prophesied to precede the second coming. So I kind of want to talk about those two together. The stuff that they have in Come Follow Me, not my favorite. Like, I actually went to the New Testament seminary manual for this because I felt like there was better stuff out there in this particular one. They do reference a talk by Dallin H. Oaks, Preparation for the Second Coming. That is really good, and I definitely recommend that you go check that out. In the New Testament seminary teacher manual, it talks a little bit about Second Thessalonians specifically and why Paul wrote it and what was going on. And if we actually go in and look, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, there's some evidence of some stuff that was going on. So here's what it says. It says that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by the spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. So what Paul's talking about there, apparently there was some fake letter that showed up there to the Thessalonians telling them that the second coming had already come and went and they'd missed it. Um, You know, we hear that in the nor by letter as from us as the day of Christ is at hand. Um, It actually reminded me of, (laughs) this is going to be like a horrible story from my childhood. So, you know, I'm the oldest of five kids. And we like to play practical jokes on each other, you know, just as kids do. And when I was a teenager, I think I was like 17 or 18, uh, I have a younger sister who was 16 and she had been at work at the mall. She worked a job at the mall and she was coming home from work and me and then one of my other younger sisters were the only ones home. And so we went and we put a note on the door where she would walk into the house that said, the second coming is here. Everyone's gone to the stake center. You need to come join us at the stake center to hear more about what we need to do next. And so we put that note on the door and we sat there in the window and watched my sister get out of the car and walk to the house and read the note and like turn and look behind her and like look back at the note and look like so puzzled and then kind of turn around and start like walking back towards her car and we ripped open the door we were like no 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 come back come back we were just joking but um yeah so those were the kind of practical jokes we played on each other as kids that the second coming was here and you know you needed to go to the stake center but I, I think that may be something that might actually happen in the second coming we may gather together in the stake center so I think um you know I felt like I had given a fake letter to my my sister as the poor Thessalonians had received from somebody else. So that's what that reminded me of there. But 
Paul is also telling them, do not soon be shaken in mind or be troubled, you know, because they were really concerned about the second coming. They thought it was something that could happen anytime. Because of the stuff that Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, it kind of put some of them into prepper mode, like they were preparing for the second coming, like that's what they were focusing on. Some of them had just kind of thrown their hands up in the air and been like, the second coming's coming, so I don't need to worry about any of this stuff. And so Paul's trying to tell them, hey guys, so yeah, the second coming's coming, but not right now. Like there's going to have to be a big falling away. And so that's kind of what all of Second Thessalonians is about. So when we go into the New Testament seminary teacher manual, it starts out with a really good quote from Jeffrey R. Holland. You know, I love some JRH. And it says, I say to all, especially the youth of the church, that if you haven't already, you will one day find yourself called upon to defend your faith or perhaps even endure some personal abuse simply because you are a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I think from the things I read both in Don H. Oaks's talk and in Second Thessalonians here, I think that as we get closer and closer to the day of the Lord coming, that the world is going to become more and more wicked. We're going to endure more and more abuse for the things that we believe. And that's what Paul was talking to the Thessalonians in Second Thessalonians 1, 3 through 5. It talks a little bit more about this. It says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith has growth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all towards each other aboundeth. So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. So again, Paul's going to his thing where he talks about, you know, I will glory in my tribulations because then I'm closer to God. Um, and that's kind of what he's telling the Second Thessalonians, you know, like the Second Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, that, you know, when you are having tribulations and trials and you're suffering those because of the Lord, count it all as good because this is going to be for your good eventually. And Dieter F. Uchtdorf has a really good quote to go along with this. He says, patience is not passive resignation and nor is it failing to act because of our fears. Patience means active waiting and enduring. It means staying with something and doing all that we can, working and hoping and exercising faith, bearing hardship with fortitude, even when the desires of our heart are delayed. Patience is not simply enduring, it is enduring it well. And to me, that was really good because I feel like a lot of times when we talk about having patience or waiting for something, it just feels kind of like not failing to act, right? Like we just kind of have to sit there and twiddle our thumbs. But I love that Dieter F. Uchtdorf brings into us bearing hardship with fortitude, hoping, working, exercising faith. Those are all things that we can do while we are waiting. And I think a lot of us who are waiting for the second coming of Christ, that these are all things that we can be doing while we are waiting for that second coming. We can have faith. We can be hoping. We can be exercising faith. Those are all things that we can do, especially while we are enduring the abuse that's heaped upon us by the world. And I think that's kind of what Paul was telling the Thessalonians there in 2 Thessalonians. All right, then going on to 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10, this is where Paul starts prophesying of Christ's second coming. And again, Paul gets a little flowery. So sometimes, you know, again, he's hard to understand. So for this, I want to jump over to Dallin H. Oaks's talk. And his talk is preparation for the second coming. And here are some of the quotes that I really like out of it. The first one is, for Matters are indisputable to Latter-day Saints. 1. The Savior will return to the earth in power and great glory to reign personally during a millennium of righteousness and peace. 2. At the time of his coming, there will be a destruction of the wicked and a resurrection of the righteous. 3. No one knows the time of his coming, but 4. The faithful are taught to study the signs of it and to be prepared for it. I wish to speak about the fourth of these great realities, the signs of the second coming and what we should do to prepare for it. Now, Paul does mention several signs of the second coming, you know, coming as a thief in the night, that the saints who are troubled will rest with him, there will be a flaming fire taking vengeance, 
everlasting punishment of the evil. I mean, there's like all those different signs. Dallin H. Oaks has a couple other signs that he actually adds to this. And I guess this is kind of his summary of all the different signs across all the different scriptures. And he has nine. And he says, The fullness of the gospel restored and preached in all the world for a witness to all nations. Two, false Christs and false prophets deceiving many. Wars and rumors of wars with nation rising against nation. Four, earthquakes in diverse places. Five, famine and pestilence. Six, a desolating sickness covering the land. Seven, iniquity abounding. Eight, the whole earth in commotion. And nine, men's hearts failing them. And I think we see all of those. Number one, the fullness of the gospel restored and preached to all the earth. I think we are seeing this preached so many different places in so many different ways. And I think once we see China opening up, I think China is going to be the key. So once China opens up, I think then this particular prophecy is going to be very, very close to being fulfilled. And I think that's when we can really be like, okay, so the second coming is soon, guys. Like soon. I think when China opens up to the missionary work, that's going to be our big key of knowing that this particular prophecy is becoming fulfilled. Um, We see lots of the other stuff, wars and rumors of wars. That has been going on for years. I mean, I was talking to my dad about this and he said, you know, I I think that's kind of a soft side of the second coming. He's like, there have been wars and rumors of wars from the time that he was born until now. And he's, you know, he was born like the 50s. So, you know, there was the Cold War and all that different stuff. There's always been rumors of war. So that's kind of like a softer sign. It's not anything that's like, you know, a hard, fast sign that you can point to, right? Earthquakes in diverse places. We are seeing a rise in earthquakes around the world. Famine and pestilence. Yeah, that's coming. The overflowing scourge, a desolating sickness covering the land is interesting to me. My first thought is cancer. Because every single one of us, I promise you, every single one of us can point to someone we know that has cancer and has someone probably close to us that has died from cancer, right? So that is a desolating sickness covering the land, right? Also, I think that there's other sicknesses out there too. I think, you know, because of our diets, And because of the chemicals in our environment, I think there are all kinds of, you know, different autoimmune disorders that are about, like, everyone knows everyone that has something. I feel like everyone I know is struggling with something health-wise. And maybe that's just because I'm getting older, and that's what happens when you get older, is, like, all of a sudden your body stops working well, and your friend's body stops working well. But I really feel like there's more and more sickness around me than there ever has been before. And of course, you know, the other one's iniquity abounding, false Christ and false prophets, the whole earth in commotion. And I think we're seeing that probably more than we ever have before because of social media and because the way that things on social media and our news media get stirred up so frequently. I feel like the whole world is in commotion more than ever before and men's hearts failing them. I think we're seeing that not only like the literal sense of that as in like heart attacks and heart failure, but I think we're also seeing that in people who are becoming scared to stand up for the truth. And, you know, their hearts failing in them in the fact that they're not being brave to stand up for what's right. And they're trying to go instead for what is popular and what's, you know, well-loved instead of going for the truth and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Dallin H. Oaks gives us some ways to prepare for the second coming. And he says, you know, we need to look at what the state of our current personal preparation is. And he says, the people of God have always been people of covenant. What is the measure of our compliance with the covenants, including the sacred promises we made in the waters of baptism, in receiving the holy priesthood and in the temples of God? Are we promisers who do not fulfill and believers who do not perform? That made me really think. I'm like, I promise every Sunday to remember my Savior. Do I always remember him? Am I a promiser who does not fulfill? Am I a believer who does not perform the promises that I've made, the covenants that I've made? How well am I keeping those? Because that's going to be a really good kind of measure of how prepared I am for when the Savior comes again. Down H. Oaks continues, Are we following the Lord's command, Stand ye in holy places, and be not moved, until the day of the Lord come? For behold, it cometh quickly. What are these holy places? 
Surely they include the temple, its covenants faithfully kept. Surely they include a home where children are treasured and parents are respected. Surely the holy places include our posts of duty assigned by priesthood authority, including missions and callings faithfully fulfilled in branches, wards, and stakes. We are surrounded in challenges on all sides, Donna continues, but with faith in God, we trust the blessings he has promised those who keep his commandments. We have faith in the future, and we are preparing for that future. If you have faith, you will not fear. That's what he's saying. And that's what Paul was saying to the Thessalonians. Have faith, do not fear. And I think that's just kind of what I have to keep holding on to. I have faith, so I will not fear. Because if you start looking at all the different signs of the second coming and all things that will happen during the second coming, like it can seem really scary, right? It can be something that's really easy to get overwhelmed by. But when all that starts happening and when I start getting like really overwhelmed and really kind of freaked out about like what's going to happen, then Dalnay Chokes, his next quote here is very helpful to me. He says, to borrow a metaphor from the familiar world of athletic competitions, we do not know when the game will end. We do not know the final score, but we do know that when the game finally ends, our team wins. So for all my friends who are fans of Alabama football, you know this feeling. You're like, I don't know what the final score will be. I, I don't know when the game's going to end. I just know Alabama's going to win, right? Roll Tide, y'all. Roll Tide. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Moving on to the second part of this from Come Follow Me, an apostasy or falling away from the truth was prophesied to precede the second coming. This is um, also something that the seminary teacher manual touches on. And we can read in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So we know because of this verse that before the second coming of Jesus Christ, an apostasy would occur. And that was prophesied. And it was not only prophesied by Paul, it was prophesied by many other books in the scripture. Even Nephi saw it in his vision of, you know, the tree of life and everything. He saw that they would, the Jews would go and join those in the great and spacious building. If we look at 1 Nephi 11.35, it says, And the multitude of the earth was gathered together, and I beheld that they were in a large and spacious building, the like unto the building which my father saw. And an angel of the Lord spake unto me again, saying, Behold the world and the wisdom thereof. Yea, behold the house of Israel. The, this is the ancient church we're talking here. Hath gathered together to fight against the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So even ancient Israel, the ones who Christ had come to here on earth, fought against the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And, you know, each one of those twelve apostles, save for a few, but each one of those died a martyr. So the ancient Israel did fight against them. Preach My Gospel has a really good quote about this. He says, After the death of Jesus Christ, wicked people persecuted the apostles and church members and killed many of them. With the death of the apostles, priesthood keys and presiding priesthood authority were taken from the earth. The apostles had kept the doctrines of the gospel pure and maintained the order and standard of worthiness for church members. Without the apostles, over time the doctrines were corrupted, unauthorized changes were made in church organization and priesthood ordinances, such as baptism and conferring the gift of the Holy Ghost. Which to me, that really clarified for me what the apostasy was, because I feel like for a long time, I thought it was just kind of like a drifting away of, you know, people kind of falling away from what they knew was true to Christianity becoming so perverted that it wasn't true Christianity anymore. But this particular quote from Preach My Gospel makes me realize that, no, it was like definitive, like cutting off. Like once the apostles died, the priesthood keys died with them. And that was the start of, you know, the apostasy, the great apostasy. Now, something in interesting that's coming here from Second Thessalonians 2, three is that the falling away that we read there is a Greek word called apostasia 
I think is how you say it, a word that is closer in meaning to rebellion or mutiny. So not only was there a falling away, people turning away from the church, but literal rebellion and mutiny. Paul was therefore speaking of an intentional fight against the gospel of Jesus Christ rather than a gradual movement away from it. Apostasy is not often not simply a passive letting go of the truth, but an active rebellion that originates with the covenant community. And Elder M. Russell Ballard of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explained that the apostasy occurred because the twelve because the people rejected Christ and his apostles. He says, In the relatively short span of years covered by the New Testament, the people turned against Christ and his apostles. The collapse was so great that we have come to know it as the great apostasy, which led to centuries of spiritual stagnation and ignorance called the Dark Ages. Now, I need to be very clear about these historically reoccurring periods of apostasy. This is M. Russell Ballard continuing. Our Heavenly Father loves all of His children, and He wants all of them to have the blessings of the gospel in their lives. Spiritual light is not lost because God turns His back on His children. Rather, spiritual darkness results when His children turn His collective backs on Him. And I think that's what happened when the church went into apostasy. You know, you had the people that Christ had come to save, and you had the people that He had literally ministered to turn their backs on him, kill his apostles, and drive his church into the ground, right? And that's what we see there. And unfortunately, it impacted all those people who were born and lived during the Dark Ages, right? So I worry a little bit about those people. I'm like, what was it like to be born and die in those Dark Ages and not have, you know, the gospel there on earth? Well, we have a really good quote from John Taylor here in the Seminary New Testament manual says, Many who lived after the apostles' death continued to follow the Lord. Their commitment to the Lord was so strong that they willingly suffered opposition and even death for their beliefs. Remember all the beheading and like the public killings and stuff that happened during the Dark Ages? I think a lot of those were is what they're talking about here. During periods of Reformation, individuals recognized that some of the teachings of Christianity had been changed and did not coincide with the teachings of the Bible. These reformers sought to realign Christianity with these scriptures. President John Taylor said the following regarding those who sought truth during the Dark Ages. These were men, and I would say that there were women, there are probably women also seeking truth then, in those Dark Ages who could commune with God, who by the power of faith could draw aside the curtain of eternity and gaze upon the invisible world, have the ministering of angels, and unfold the future destinies of the world. If those were the Dark Ages, I prayed God to give me a little darkness and deliver me from the light and intelligence that prevail in our day. So that shows me that there really was the light of Christ on earth for select individuals during the dark ages. It wasn't completely dark. And I also think that's why it's so important that we do our family history work and specifically focus on those individuals if we have correct historical records of them who lived during that time, because I think there were individuals on that earth who would readily accept the gospel. They just did not have it in their lives. The New Testament Seminary Teacher Manual continues on, Due to the efforts of these reformers and other faithful followers of God, truths about Heavenly Father and His plan survived the apostasy and can be found throughout the religions of the earth. However, truths necessary for our salvation were lost, as well as the priesthood authority to direct the work and administer the ordinances of salvation. And that's really where I see the apostasy happening is when the priesthood was removed from the earth. That was the big key to the great apostasy opening up and happening, right? The Lord assured that those in other religions that the restoration of the church and the Book of Mormon did not declare that everything they taught was false. And we read in D&C, Behold, I do not bring it to destroy that which they have received, but to build it up. D&C 10.52 For this reason, President Gordon B. Hinckley invited all the people of the earth to bring with you all that you have of good and truth which you have received from whatever source, and come and let us see if we may add to it. That's from The Marvelous Foundation of Our Faith, November 2002 in the Ensign. 
I love that too because it talks about their that the truth survived. Like there, there were little particulates of truth that survived these dark ages, little bits of light that made their way through it and then got spread out to the various religions of the world. And I love that because I do see truth in some of the religions of the world. And I love that Gordon B. Hinckley has that invitation where he says, you know, hey, take what you have and your truth and come to our church and our ministry and see if we can add to it. Because, you know, what you have isn't necessarily wrong. We just have more. You don't necessarily have a wrong puzzle piece. You just only have one puzzle piece and we have the rest of the puzzle. I love that invitation of Gordon B. Hinckley. I don't know. It's just really beautiful to me. I also love that in the Come Follow Me manual that they have several quotes from several different Christian reformers during the Great Apostasy. They have Martin Luther, who of course we know was a reformer against the Catholic Church. We have Roger Williams, who actually was a Puritan here in the New World, and um, he formed Rhode Island, what would become Rhode Island, the colony that would become Rhode Island. And then we have Erasmus, of course. And they even noticed, these were some of the men of light that John Taylor was talking about, that they noticed that, you know, Christianity has ceased to exist among those who should have preserved it. Roger Williams says that the apostasy will continue until Christ shall send forth new apostles to plant churches anew. And everything is so entangled, Erasmus says, with these questions of doctrine and decrees that we dare not even hope to call the world back to true Christianity. They recognize that Christianity had lost its way, that there was the great apostasy. And so, I don't know, the apostasy, it's its a sad topic, I think, but at the same time, I think it's a necessary topic, so we know what happened to make sure that we aren't having that happen in our own hearts, that we don't have an apostasy happening in our own, own hearts, right? So, that's kind of what I saw there in those two sections of Come Follow Me. Thank y'all for sticking around with me. Thank you for listening to some of my rambling. I know I got a little rambly here, but um, I'll just keep rambling on, right? I hope you guys have a fabulous week, and I will see you guys here next week. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Have a question or comment? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.